0: Well, if you would, please go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 13. I want us to begin uh, our time this morning by reading our passage together, which is Matthew 13, 1 to 23. So once again, uh, please turn to Matthew 13, verses 1 to 23. And as you turn there, I'd like to just very briefly set the context for you, uh, since it's been a few weeks since we've been in this gospel together. Uh, If you recall, we are in the midst of a a section in which Matthew uh, is exploring uh, the various causes and implications for Israel's rejection of Jesus. Uh, Jesus' ministry was accompanied with tremendous authority and power, and yet the nation still managed to reject His message. This rejection would have naturally created a lot of confusion among those who did believe, and most especially among the Jewish believers to whom Matthew was writing. And so after explaining the content of Jesus' message in Matthew 5-7, to and after recalling the signs and wonders that authenticated His message in Matthew 8-9, and after explaining how Jesus managed to publish His message far and wide throughout Galilee in Matthew 10, Matthew then gets into explaining what it was that led the nations to, to still reject this message, as well as what the consequences of this rejection would be in Matthew 11-13. to And at the end of chapter 12, this rejection of Jesus, and again, we're still kind of in review here, this rejection of Jesus culminated with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this sin that Jesus says will not be forgiven, neither in this age nor in the age to come. There, in a a crystal clear demonstration of His messianic authority, Jesus healed a blind and mute demoniac by the power of the Spirit, only for the religious leaders to then turn around and claim that Jesus could only do this by the power of Satan. They claimed that Jesus was in league with Satan, that He was working with Satan to lead the nation astray. And with this accusation, Jesus indicated that Israel's repentance had become essentially hopeless. If they were going to reject Him... While he was performing these kinds of signs and wonders, then there was absolutely no hope that they would ever come to repentance. There was simply nothing that Jesus could do to further demonstrate his authority. And for this reason, when the scribes and the Pharisees came forward asking Jesus to perform some other kind of sign so that they could believe in him, Jesus refuses. He tells them that he will not be giving them anything else. From now on, there is only one sign that they're going to get. That is the sign of his resurrection after three days in the heart of the earth. And this sign was designed really to hearken back to Jonah and to serve as a parallel that warned the people of the judgment that would soon come upon them for their rejection of the Christ. This was the only thing left for the people of Israel after the blasphemy of the Spirit. At that point, it was evident that Jesus would be rejected by Israel. There was no stopping that. And so the only thing left for God to do was to pour out His wrath on the nation for their sin. Of course, Jesus then followed up that scathing rebuke with a brief discussion explaining who does belong to Him and who will be a part of His kingdom. There is this request from Jesus' family to see Him, and Jesus uses this request as an opportunity to explain who it is that belongs to His spiritual family. And this is essentially where we pick up in the story in Matthew 13. The blasphemy of the Spirit has occurred, the nation's fate is sealed, and yet there are still some individual Israelites who have responded to Jesus' message and will join Him in His kingdom. And it's within this context that Matthew writes in Matthew thirteen, one to 23 That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about Him so that He got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And He told them many things in parables For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. In my experience as a pastor, I would say that there are few matters of doctrine, few theological subjects that Christians find more fascinating, more intriguing than the kingdom of God. People are just naturally drawn to this subject. They want to know uh, when this kingdom is going to come and how it will come and what it will look like when it comes. Uh, when I was a junior high Bible teacher and I asked my students what book of the Bible they would like to study if I gave them the pick of any book in the Scripture, uh, they would all inv- invariably vote for the book of Revelation. I even ca- I've even encountered more than one unbelie- unbeliever who will actively try to shut down any discuss- discussion of sin and of the judgment of sin and the cross, uh, and they, would, they will reject that discussion only to then open up And become very curious and begin asking questions once the kingdom of God somehow enters into the conversation. There's just this natural and and nearly universal interest in the kingdom of God. It seems like everybody wants to know what the scripture says this kingdom is. And what it will be like when it comes. And how it will come. And what is required of a person to enter into this kingdom. And there's good reason for this curiosity. If you stop to consider how the Scripture opens with the creation of man to rule over the earth in God's image, how it then continues to give an in-depth records of God's dealings with a people who were given God's laws and commissioned to spread this rule throughout the earth. If you stop to consider how it even culminates in a grand battle between good and evil in which God's chosen king vanquishes all sin and evil and sets up God's rule over the earth then it's probably not hard to argue that the kingdom of God is one of, if not the major theme of Scripture. It's probably fair to say that human history is just one long narrative detailing how God's visible reign over the earth was lost through Adam and then is being reestablished through Jesus Christ. And within this scope, the scripture is really just a document in which God declares his intentions to restore his rule over the earth and explains what he has done so that men and women can participate in this coming restoration of all things. The kingdom of God is really at the very heart of the scriptures. The Scriptures simply explain that the creation is supposed to be under the rule of God, that man was created to administer that rule, but then rejected that rule, that God therefore intends to restore His rule, and that He will do this regardless of whether individuals are complicit with that rule or not. And so every man and woman should seek reconciliation with God through His chosen King rather than be destroyed at the inauguration of His kingdom. This would seem to be why everyone, even the unbeliever, is fascinated with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God explains what we believe about the unfolding of human history. It explains what we are as human beings and what we ought to be. And it explains what we believe the culmination of all things on this planet will be. In this sense, there is probably no better way to summarize the core of our faith than with the kingdom of God. It is at the very heart of Christianity. What the Christian believes about the kingdom of God essentially summarizes what they believe Christianity is about, what's going on in our faith. It explains both who they think God is and what they think He is doing in the world through Jesus Christ. This would seem to be why there is this fascination with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The Christian's understanding of the kingdom of God explains how they look at the world and what they believe will be the fate of every man and woman. Well, if you're one of those people that happen to be be fascinated with the kingdom of God, then you're in luck. Because we're approaching a section of Matthew in which Jesus spends a significant time amount of time, teaching about the kingdom of God. That's going to be the theme of, uh, over the course of this next chapter, Matthew 13. In this chapter, Jesus is going to be teaching about the kingdom of God. And in fact, He's not just going to teach about the kingdom of God, He's actually going to reveal what is referred to in the Greek as ta mysteria tes basilias, or the mysteries of the kingdom. And that's not a mystery in the way that you and I think of it. When we think of the word mystery, we think of some kind of confounding or uh, even some type of unknowable phenomena or event. If there's a murder and the police don't know who the killer is, we call it a mystery. Or if there's something, uh, some, some kind of scientific event that we can't explain, that we don't know the answers to, then we call that a mystery. You know, we'll read news articles that talk about scientific developments that are unlocking the mysteries of the brain or something of that sort. This is not what the word mysteria meant in this context when Jesus uttered this saying. Rather, it speaks to religious doctrine or practice that was revealed only to initiates of a particular religious community. It was truth that was to be revealed only to insiders. You see, a similar thing happened today with so-called secret societies I don't know if you're familiar with many modern-day secret societies, but uh, my grandfather, for example, was a member of of his local Masonic lodge for a brief period of time. And according to my mom, uh, even after he quit the lodge, he refused to discuss what was said and done during those meetings. This is because the Masons were a secret society. And my grandfather swore an oath that he wouldn't share the details of that society with outsiders. Well, just as today there are secret societies that have meetings whose details are to be known only to the members of that society, so also in the ancient world there were so called mystery religions whose truths were revealed only to those who were committed to the community, to insiders. That's more of what's going on here in chapter 13. Jesus is going to discuss the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And by this he means that he is going to discuss really the secrets. Of the kingdom of heaven. These are details about the kingdom of God that are only really intended for initiates, for insiders, for those in the know. So, what we're about to see is not just any teaching on the kingdom, this is a kind of special revelation about it. This isn't necessarily for public consumption. This is the stuff about the kingdom that is really only intended for those who have been initiated into it. Again, if you're interested in the, king, in the kingdom, then this is exciting stuff. Jesus is going to dig deep and begin to get into some really advanced teaching about this subject that everyone seems to be fascinated with. There's only one problem about this teaching, though. And that is He reveals these secrets in the form of parables. This is to say that Jesus doesn't state these kingdom secrets plainly. He doesn't deliver them in a straightforward manner. Instead, he teaches them through stories and illustrations. He uses analogies. He says the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he gives some sort of comparison meant to explain certain truths about the kingdom. And on one hand, that sounds great. I mean, who doesn't like illustrations, right? That's probably the favorite part of the sermon for most people, the the stories, the illustrations. We like stories. The problem is that these stories tend to make the truths that Jesus is sharing about the kingdom hard to understand. Don't get me wrong, stories and illustrations can often clarify a subject when it's matched with clear and direct statements about what's being described. I I can say to you, for instance, God's love is unconditional. I can deliver a propositional statement, God's love is unconditional, and that would be a true statement. But when that statement is illustrated... With the story of Hosea, for instance, and his adulterous wife, it is understood more clearly. This is what stories and illustrations can do. They can give clarity when they're matched with some type of clear and direct statement to explain them. But when these stories stand alone, as Jesus' parables tend to do, then they can actually be kind of confusing. If I were to say, for instance, without any other explanation if i were to say to you god is like the sun whose radiance shines down on the earth regardless of whether or not the clouds may momentarily cover and hide it from us from time to time what would i be talking about in that illustration what would be your guess I mean, it could be any number of things, right? You, you think of the radiance of the sun, of, of the light that it puts off, and you start to think, well, what does light represent? You might think that it perhaps represents wisdom or knowledge. Maybe I'm saying that God's truth is still truth, regardless of whether or not people recognize it and perceive it. They can cover it up for a period of time. They can suppress that truth. But at the end of the day, the truth of God will still shine through in the end. You might think that's what I'm saying with that illustration. Or maybe I'm teaching the exact same principle but only in regards to righteousness. Maybe I'm talking about the gleaming righteousness and glory of God. And my point, once again, is that it may be clouded for a moment by the actions of wicked men, but in the end it will be uncovered and revealed. It is there and it, whether it can be seen or not. But what if I were to then preface that illustration by saying, God will never leave or forsake His children. And then say, He is like the sun whose radiance shines down on the earth, regardless of whether or not the clouds may momentarily cover and hide it from time to time. Now, do you understand what I'm talking about? Once I give that introductory statement, the illustration is much clearer, isn't it? It even enhances my point, which is that God will never leave or forsake His children. It makes my point clearer, more vivid. It's memorable. This is how stories work. They can give clarity when they're illustrating a point. But if they stand alone, they can actually be quite confusing. The problem in Matthew 13 is that as Jesus teaches about the secrets of the kingdom, He teaches them to the crowds in parables without any sort of explanation, at least publicly. It is only in private that He may pull His disciples aside and give some sort of explanation about the meaning of the parable, but in public they're just left to their own. And in some instances, Jesus doesn't even explain those parables to His own disciples. And this can make the meaning of the parables very confusing. So this chapter is exciting. Because in this chapter, Jesus is going to reveal secret teachings about the kingdom of God. That's exciting because there's this advanced level of teaching about this fascinating subject taking place. But this chapter can also be very frustrating because Jesus reveals these secrets in the form of a series of parables illustrations. What I want to do this morning as a means of kind of preparing us uh, for a study of these parables over the next several weeks is to try to explain to you why Jesus taught these secrets in this way. I imagine that you probably wonder why Jesus would choose to reveal these kingdom secrets so cryptically. And I think that if you can understand the answer to that question, then you're going to be better equipped to understand the meaning of these parables as we move forward. In other words, I believe that understanding why Jesus spoke in parables is actually part of the key to unlocking their meaning. So if you're going to understand these parables, then we need to first pause and try to understand their purpose. We need to know why Jesus chose to reveal these truths in this form. Unfortunately for us, Jesus is not in any way cryptic about that. He states his reason for the parables quite plainly, and we see him do that in the middle of our passage for this morning. And so that's where we're going to be spending our time today. Our passage, once again, is Matthew uh, Matthew 13, 1-23. And in this passage, Jesus delivers and then explains a parable, sometimes called the parable of the soils, or alternately the parable of the sower. This is the first of these parables here in Matthew 13. And after Jesus delivers the parables, this parable, the disciples come to him and ask him in verse 10, why do you speak to them, that is the crowds, why do you speak to them in parables? And in verses 11 to 17, Jesus answers their question. So that's where we're going to be um, with the remainder of our time this morning. We're in Matthew 13, 1 to 23, where Jesus delivers the parable of the soils. But before I try to begin to explain this parable, I actually want to introduce you to this chapter by jumping, jumping to the middle of this passage and explain why Jesus spoke this way. Why he decided to reveal the secrets of the kingdom in parables. And once again, this means that we're going to be focusing in on verses 10 to 17. So if you would, uh, please read this section of the passage with me one more time. Our subject for today is the purpose of Jesus' kingdom parables. And we find this purpose in verses 10 to seven, where Matthew says this. uh, 10 to 17, sorry, where Matthew says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Uh, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. once again our subject for today is the purpose of Christ's kingdom parables we want to know uh, why did Jesus choose to reveal the secrets of the kingdom in parables? And Matthew shows us the answer right here in verses 10 to 17. And this passage, I think, can be broken down into four parts. You have it there in your notes. First, there is a question that is asked in verse 10. Then there is an answer in verse 11. This answer is explained in verses 12 to 15. That's the third part, an explanation. And then finally, there is a conclusion in verses 16 to 17. That's going to kind of serve as the structure for our message this morning. The passage begins with a question. The disciples come to Jesus and ask in verse 10, Why do you speak to them in parables? And to understand the reason for this question, you have to look back at the pre- preceding context in verses 1-9. to 9. Verses 1-3 to 3 in particular say that, quote, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by us beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about Him, so that He sat, got into a boat and sat down. And uh, the whole crowds stood on the beach, and He told them many things in parables, saying... And then Matthew goes on to record the first of these parables, the parable of the soils. So there are two things going on here. Jesus is is still teaching the crowds, just as He was before. He's continuing His public teaching ministry. The difference, however, is that now He's doing it in parables. Again, not, not just illustrations, parables. In other words, whereas before Jesus said things like, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Or, or things like, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Which are these statements that describe various aspects of the kingdom of heaven in very clear, very understandable language, in direct statements. Suddenly, Jesus is starting to speak about the kingdom in parables. He's still telling the crowds about the kingdom, but now he's doing it much more cryptically than what he was doing before. He's just starting to, he's just sharing these illustrations about the kingdom without even explaining them. And the disciples don't know why this is. They don't understand why there is this shift taking place in Jesus' teaching. And so they come to Him and they ask, why do you speak to them in parables? They want to know what's the deal. Why are you speaking to the crowd so cryptically now instead of just outright telling them truths about the kingdom like we've seen you do before? Why this change? That's the question. Jesus gives the answer in verse 11, saying, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. In short, Jesus says that He is speaking in parables because He does not want to be understood. At least not by everyone. If you look, Jesus makes a sharp contrast between two groups of people here. First, Jesus is addressing the disciples and He says, to you, and that's actually stated emphatically in the grief, He says, to you. Meaning, to you in particular, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And then in contrast to that, he says, but to them, to them, that is the crowds, it has not been given. So we can see that with the parables, Jesus is seeking to reveal the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but not to everyone. Again Jesus is revealing mysteries here. These are these truths aren't intended for everyone. These are secrets to be revealed only to those who are members of Jesus religious community. These are secrets to be revealed only to his followers. Only to insiders. He wants the disciples to receive these secrets, but not the crowds. They're outsiders. So there's, there's this mass of people sitting there before Jesus, and he's trying to disseminate information about the kingdom to one group of people while hiding it, uh, that truth, from another group of people. And Jesus' solution to this problem is to teach this information in parables. This is fascinating, I think. I don't know about you. I think this is fascinating. You know, This is, this is where I think the storytelling aspect uh, to Jesus' ministry is so often misunderstood. You'll sometimes hear, for instance, that good sermons should be filled with stories and illustrations because they help grab the attention of the audience and explain deep truths in a simple way that's easier to understand. And then to defend this point, a person will point to Jesus and say, After all, didn't Jesus teach with, in parables? And the answer is yes, he did speak in parables. But it wasn't exactly in order to be clear, actually, it was to be unclear. Now, Jesus did often use stories and illustrations in order to make his teaching vivid and easy to understand. I don't dispute that point. But the parables are not an example of that. Quite the opposite. They were spoken in order to make Jesus' teaching accessible to one part of his audience and inaccessible to another. The parables are, in this sense, intended to be a kind of code. They are constructed in such a way so as to be understandable and useful to Jesus' disciples and confusing and frustrating to everyone else. This is going to be important to keep in mind as we try to understand the parables. They are intended to be clear to Jesus' followers and they are to be unclear to everyone else. In other words, these are illustrations which in a sense shouldn't really need much explanation if a person is following Jesus, if they understand Him. Jesus doesn't have to state his point clearly to them because just as with the illustration alone, uh, just with the illustration alone, the disciple is able to grasp a basic sense of what Jesus is talking about. But to a person who has not accepted Jesus' message, the the meaning of the parable should be unclear and confounding when presented by itself. That person should hear the illustration but have no grasp of what it's actually trying to communicate. It's gibberish in their mind and they're unable to perceive the meaning of it behind that illustration. So that's the basic reason for the parables. Jesus is speaking in parables because He wants one group of His audience to understand and another group not to understand. But why is this so? Why does Jesus want these truths about the kingdom to be a secret? Why doesn't He want everyone to understand what He's saying? And how does this work? How is this possible For Jesus to speak these truths publicly, only to have part of the audience understand their meaning. And we see the answer to these questions spelled out in the explanation, which occurs in verses 12 to 15. There Jesus says this, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. Indeed in their case the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their ears, or, I'm sorry, see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, in turn and I would heal them. Why does Jesus want these kingdom truths to be secret? He answers that question in verse 12 when he says, for to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And this is a kind of aphoristic saying. It's a a general truth that can be applied in a lot of different settings. That's what I mean when I say it's an aphoristic saying. It's a general truth that can be applied in a lot of different settings. If you've ever heard the phrase, uh, it takes money to make money, it's kind of like that. What Jesus is saying here. It explains this principle that you sometimes see played out in life where those who have much tend to get even more on top of what they already have, whereas those who do not have tend to have even what little they have taken away. For example, if you've ever been poor, then you can identify with how expensive it can get being poor. You can't can't afford to buy a nice car, so you buy whatever you can get, but then you can't really afford to properly maintain it. And then when it breaks down from poor maintenance, you can't afford to fix it. And before long, you're spending so much money on repair repair bills, for instance, that the beater car practically ends up being more expensive than the one bought in new or near-to-new condition. It's really weird how this tends to work. For instance, I remember one time hearing a pro athlete from a poor background uh, relating how when he was a child... He couldn't wait to get rich so that he could buy whatever he wanted. But now that he was making millions of dollars playing pro sports, he never had to buy anything because people would just give him stuff. And just kind of the, the paradox of that, he was kind of you know confounded by that. The, the rich tend to get richer and the poor tend to get poor. And, and this concept is played out in a lot of other scenarios as well. For example, a, a fresh college graduate probably can relate to this principle once they hit the job market for the first time. They fill out their resume and start looking for jobs to apply apply for, but in the process they only end up finding that every job posting in their field seems to require five years of experience. And that can be a very frustrating experience. (laughs) I mean, if if everyone is looking for five years of experience, then how are they going to get a job? How can you get experience if no one is hiring anyone without experience? That's what verse 12 is stating. It's it's a kind of aphorism, a pithy statement statement explaining a general truth. And that's how Jesus tends to use this phrase. He actually repeats this statement, this phrase on a few different occasions in his ministry. He doesn't just say it here in Matthew 13. It comes up in other contexts as well. He for example in, in Matthew 25, Jesus will tell of another familiar parable. The the parable of the tenant, the the talents. He tells this story about about three servants who were were responsible to care for different quantities of their master's wealth while he was away. One ser- servant receives 5 talents and another 2 and one servant receives only one talent the first and second servant invest their money and double their master's wealth while he is gone but the last servant the one with only one talent didn't invest in money or didn't invest his money instead he hid his talent in fear of losing it and when the master returns he tells the first two servants well done good and faithful servant you've been faithful over a little I will set you over much enter into the joy of your master but when the master comes to the last servant he punishes that servant and gives his talent to the servant who first received five talents, concluding quote, "For to everyone who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away." So it would appear that this principle that Jesus uses here can be applied in a few different contexts. It's not isolated to just this setting. But here, Jesus applies it to these kingdom truths that he's expounding on in Matthew 13. Jesus is not offering up these truths to everyone. They are secrets that he is sharing with a select group of people. And the reason is because of this principle in verse 12, the one who has will have even more, and the one who does not have will have even what little he has taken away. Now, what's notable is that when Jesus delivers this aphorism, he isn't using it just to describe some kind of natural occurrence, as if he's just standing back and watching these secrets happen, and then uses this aphorism to explain their existence. Rather, he's using it to explain his deliberate choice not to share these secrets with the crowds. In this instance, this aphorism explains Jesus' reasoning, his motives for keeping these kingdom truths secret. Jesus is intentionally, willfully choosing to keep these truths secret. And the reason because, is because as he sees it, the disciples are the haves and the rest are the have-nots. And that can seem odd. That can seem even unfair. Jesus is essentially enacting a kind of judgment on one section of his listeners by intentionally masking the truth from them through these Parables. And the reason he has explained is not because that section of the crowds has too much. But rather because they have too little. So what's going on here? Is is Jesus being unjust? You know, is he being unjust to give to the rich and take from the poor? Why does Jesus think it appropriate to apply this principle here? Again, why does he want to keep these kingdom truths secret? He gives the answer in verses 13 to 15. Saying, let's read it once again. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is uh, of Isaiah is fulfilled, that says, "You will indeed hear, but never understand; you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their hearts and understand. Uh, uh, hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them." Now we can be now we can can begin to see where Jesus is going here now we can begin to see what Jesus is driving at Jesus begins to clarify why it is appropriate to keep these kingdom truths from the people in verse thirteen when he says, "This is why I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand now taken out of context. That has the potential to sound kind of harsh because it can sound like the people are being judged by Jesus for a condition that they can't really help. It seems like an unfair thing to condemn a blind person for being blind or a deaf person for being deaf because those are conditions, and really not just conditions, but but afflictions, really, right? that they can't help. Likewise, it would seem unreasonable to judge someone with a slow mind for their inability to comprehend something that's hard to understand, that's beyond their abilities. And it's possible to read this verse assuming that that is the kind of condition that Jesus is referring to. It's possible to think that Jesus is saying that the people cannot see or hear or understand the kingdom truths that he's teaching. And so he is therefore speaking in parables so that they will not have access to these truths. They lack the ability to understand these truths about the kingdom. Therefore, He's taking the truth away because they're unable to properly digest it. That's not what Jesus is saying. Look again at verses 14 to 15. Jesus explains even further why this people cannot hear or see or understand. And He does this with a quotation from Isaiah 6. Now listen closely to what He says here. He says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is uh, fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. That's the verse that Jesus just paraphrased in verse 13, right? Now, the next verse explains why the people are this way. Listen closely. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they barely hear, and their eyes they have closed closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Notice here, God says the people's heart has grown dull, but why? What has made it that way? They can barely hear with their ears. Again, why? Look at what is said next. Their eyes, who is closed? They have closed. Did you catch that? Why are the people's eyes closed? Who made it that way? The people did. They closed their own eyes. As a matter of fact, it would appear that this is, it's the same way with their ears as well. At least that's how I would translate it from the Greek. That second phrase in this verse should read something like, they listened with ears with difficulty, or perhaps more smoothly, that could be said, they were hard of hearing. And there is room here to imply that they made themselves this way. They are like a child who refuses to listen to the commands of his parents. So also, like that child, this people was slow to hear. The point is that the people chose not to listen, not to see. This is why their heart has grown dull. And why? Why do they refuse to hear or see? Look at the second half of the verse. Lest they should see with their ears, or see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. The reason Jesus, is, Jesus explains is because they didn't want to understand. They didn't want to hear and see the things that would make them understand. And why not? Well, it's because they were fearful that if they did understand, then they would repent of their sin and God would heal them. Which is a telling statement, is it not? Because this statement indicates that the people can perceive They can't understand the message that they're hearing, but they're afraid of its implications. They know what the message means. It means repentance and healing, but they don't want that. Therefore, they close their eyes to the truth. They shut their ears to the truth. They push it away so that they won't be convicted of that truth and come to repentance. You see what's happening here? This is not some kind of spiritually helpless people that Jesus is condemning. These are dyed-in-the-wool rebels. These are people who do not see, not because they cannot see, but because they will not see. They refuse to see. This is why Jesus is speaking to them in parables. This is why he considers it appropriate to apply the aphorism of verse 12 in this situation. Their people refuse to see, they are rebelliously blind, and so because they refuse to recognize the truth, Jesus doesn't see fit to give it to them anymore. If anything, it's appropriate to condemn them for their sin by even taking the truth they do have away, the truth that they refuse to acknowledge, that he takes that away. And if we put this statement in context, then we can understand exactly what Jesus is referring to when he says that this people refuse to see or hear. Remember back to chapter 12. And what happened there? Again, Jesus cast a demon out of a man who was, ironically, blind and mute. And what did the scribes and the Pharisees say? They said that Jesus cast out demons by the Prince of Demons. And what did Jesus call that act? He said it was blasphemy against the Spirit. The leaders were witnessing a sign that clearly and undeniably testified to the truth of Jesus' ministry, but they suppressed that truth by telling an outright lie about the working of the Spirit through Jesus. They closed their eyes and shut their ears to the truth that they clearly perceived. And why? Because they didn't want to repent and be healed. And unfortunately, how did the crowds respond? They followed suit. Even though they were able to recognize on their own who Jesus was, they still listened to their religious leaders and they too blinded themselves to the truth. This is why Jesus is speaking in parables. The people do not hear or see because they refuse to hear or see. And so in judgment, Jesus is preventing them from hearing or seeing anything further and he's doing this by teaching in parables that they cannot understand. This is really just so devastating. I mean, do you remember how back in chapter 12, Jesus said that the blasphemy of the Spirit would not be forgiven, neither in this age, in this age, nor in the one to come. You're seeing that judgment play itself out right here. The people have refused to see. They have made themselves unable to see because of the hardness of their hearts. And so now, in condemnation of that sin, Jesus is actually taking away the very truths that, at least theoretically, could lead them to salvation. Now, I'm not saying that they ever would. Again, they don't want to accept that truth. But the point is, Jesus, in judgment, is taking away even that opportunity. Jesus had performed signs and wonders before the people to give evidence to his ministry. And back in chapter 12, he's already told them that he's not going to be performing these signs and wonders anymore. At least not for them. Now, he won't even teach them plainly about the kingdom. This is what he means when he says that even the one who has or the one who ha, even, even the one who has little will have what he has taken away. I mean Israel they, they had the Messiah there performing signs and wonders in their midst, teaching them clearly, and they rejected that, and so it 's being taken away that opportunity is being taken away he 's carrying on his public teaching ministry but, but because Uh, uh, Because, as we will see, there are some who have ears to hear and understand, but now he's doing it in parables so that those who have rejected him can no longer understand him. Again, he's just completely taking the truth away. And in this way, their fate is sealed. The only truth that could have brought them to repentance, it was once on display, but they rejected it, and now it is hidden. No longer will they hear the message that could save them. The disciples, on the other hand, they can hear. They do listen. And so they will receive these additional truths about the kingdom. Jesus will share these secrets with them. And this brings us to the final section of this passage, the conclusion which occurs in verses 16 to 17. Jesus says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Once again, the disciples do listen. Their eyes and ears are open. They are not rebellious to the truth. They have received and accepted the kingdom truths that Jesus has proclaimed. They've repented of their sin and they've accepted Jesus' messianic authority. And for this reason, Jesus calls them blessed. Because he desires to reveal these kingdom secrets to them. And they will be able to hear these parables and understand and learn. This is an incredible blessing. As Jesus points out in verse 17, He is going to use these parables to reveal aspects of the kingdom that the Old Testament saints and even the Old Testament prophets longed to look into and understand. Again, Matthew 13 isn't, you know, Kingdom 101, This isn't a basic course. This is advanced instruction. In this discourse, Jesus is going to reveal things about the kingdom that not even the prophets properly understood. But He's only going to reveal it to those who have ears to hear and understand. He's only going to reveal it to those who are able to and willing to accept the things that He has to share. And I think if you can understand this point, kind of how this is all working, then you have discovered the key to unlocking the meaning of these parables. Parables. If we step back and ask ourselves what the purpose of the parables are, or is, I think we can see that they are designed with one basic goal in mind, which is to reveal the truths of the kingdom of heaven to those who are ready to respond to those truths, while at the same time masking that truth from those who are not. And what we should keep in mind is that this means that the parables are designed as instruction, on one hand, for Jesus' disciples, and to some extent, they're even an invitation as well. They're not an invitation to everyone, but they are an invitation. There is, listen, there's a reason why Jesus is sharing these parables with the crowds rather than just His disciples. There is a reason why He will sometimes conclude a parable after He's taught it to the crowds with this refrain, He who has ears, let him hear. And presumably there are those among the crowds who have not yet heard the truth of the kingdom who are ready and willing to respond. These parables are designed so that those members of the crowd can hear and understand and respond while the rest are left confounded and confused about even the basic meaning of the parables. So how do these parables work? How do they communicate to the one group and not the other? And what does this tell us about how we should approach the interpretation of these parables? Well, the difference, obviously, between these two groups of people is their willingness to respond to the truth. One group intentionally shuts their eyes to the truth while the other is looking for it. They want to understand. And it would appear that this difference, this Willingness to respond to the truth is ultimately what makes the parables accessible to the one group and not the other. Let me give you an example that explains how this works. Next week, we'll talk about the parable of the soils. And what we'll see is that this parable explains why some people are able to receive the word of the kingdom and why others are not. Standing by itself without any sort of explanation. That parable only makes sense to those who perceive the truth of Jesus' kingdom message and are considering whether or not they should accept it. Because that parable is explaining the answer to a dilemma that only those who can see the truth are even aware of. It's a parable built around the idea that the truth is being proclaimed. And it's it's, it's built around the idea that not only is the truth being proclaimed, but only some are accepting it. The disciples can understand why Jesus is teaching the parable and what it means because that's the question on their minds when Jesus speaks the parable. They want to know why so many are ignoring the message when the truth of that message is so plainly obvious. The parable answers that question. But only they can understand that because they're the only ones in the crowd with that, that kind of a question even on their mind. There's no such dilemma for those who have rejected Jesus. To them, it's obvious that Jesus is a false prophet, and so it's likewise obvious that he should be rejected. They don't even question it, because his rejection just makes so much sense. So when, these, when Jesus then goes and tells that parable, there's no dilemma that they're wrestling with. In short, the parable answers a question that they're not even aware of. And so when they hear the parable, it's gibberish. It doesn't compute, because there's no framework to put it in. There's no context for it. Whereas the disciples are keenly aware of the situation that the parables are addressing precisely because they have believed, the rest are totally ignorant of that situation, again, because they have not believed. So they don't understand what the parables are explaining. They don't understand what the parables are addressing. They're not even aware of the question that the parables answer. I, I would illustrate it like this. Suppose you were walking down the street with two friends, and one of these friends was blind. Now suppose that as you are walking, a mugger slightly or silently steps out from behind the corner of a building with a gun in hand and motioned to you to hand over your purse or your wallet. You know, he's not wanting to make a commotion, so he doesn't say anything. He just steps out with a gun, motions you to hand over your valuables, your things. Now, if in that moment you responded to the mugger just by saying, it's okay. Just just relax. Just relax. Only one of your friends would understand what you meant by that statement. Because only one of them would be aware of the problem that was causing you to make that statement. Your blind friend might be sitting there thinking to himself, Relax. What, is, what does he mean, relax? Why do I need to relax? That's the parables. That's how they work. They're addressing a problem that Only those who believe in Jesus are aware of. And so what this means is that belief in Jesus' messianic status is a kind of prerequisite to understanding the parables. That's the key to unlocking their meaning. These parables are delivered in the context of Israel's wrongful rejection of Jesus, and in order to understand them, you have to read them in that context. You have to take into account, one, that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, and two, that He is not yet accepted by the world. Because that is the issue they address. They make sense of that problem. And apart from that setting, they're gibberish. So the the only ones who are going to make heads or tails of these parables are those that understand this dilemma. To them, the meaning of the parables will be clear. But to the rest, there will be nothing more than, than cryptic and confusing stories. Fortunately for you and I, this doesn't have to be the case. While the parables were spoken in order to mask the truth from from those who rejected Christ, they were also spoken in order to reveal additional truth to those that accepted Christ. And if you are in Christ, then that applies to you. So the parables don't have to be confusing because you already have the key that unlocks their meaning. You understand that Jesus is the Messiah and you can look around and understand the dilemma that caused Jesus to utter these sayings. You can see not only Israel's rejection of Jesus, but even the world's rejection of Jesus and understand this shouldn't be. And that's really all you need to understand the basic sense of these parables. And so now the table is set. In the next few weeks, I'm going to be using this interpretive grid to unlock the meaning of, to explain the meaning of these parables. And, and this should be an exciting time for us because through these parables, Jesus is going to show us about the kingdom, things about the kingdom of heaven that not even the prophets had fully understood and wanted to. And this is really just—we're really just in an incredibly privileged position in history. Peter tells us that in First Peter one ten to eleven that the Old Testament prophets searched diligently in order to understand the identity of the Messiah, only to come up short. You have that knowledge. You—you you know. He has come. You know His name. You can read and hear His teaching. The prophets longed for that opportunity. And the disciples had that opportunity. They sat and had conversations with the Messiah. They saw His coming and heard His instruction. You likewise get that opportunity through the study of the New Testament Scriptures. The prophets would have envied you in that respect to be able to know the exact identity of the Messiah, to see His works, and to hear His teaching. But we're privileged not only in that respect, that we can know who the Messiah is and see His works and hear His teaching, but we're also privileged in that through Him and through His parables in particular, we get to hear and understand truths about the kingdom which clarify Old Testament prophecies that were previously very hard to understand. We get the privilege of receiving a a doctrinal clarity about the kingdom of heaven that many of those who came before us could only wish for. And these new truths are going to be a tremendous encouragement. They're going to help us make sense of the time and the age that we're living in. They're going to help us understand the world around us. They're going to help us understand what is happening, for instance, uh, in things like the Obergefell versus Hodges decision. Like what's happening in the wake of that? Why is that going on? The kingdom parables are going to help um, kind of provide a, a context for that, a framework for understanding that. This really should be an enlightening and encouraging time as we look at these parables over the next few weeks. So I would encourage you to come back and make it a priority to come back next week as we look at the first of these parables, the parable of the soils. Until then, let's close in prayer.